Hello, Christine. Hello, Christine. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. If you hear my dog barking, it's because she can, she can tell I'm speaking to the lady whose house she normally poops in front of on our walks. My greatest claim to fame in this city. <laughs> yeah. Well, when, when you have so many competing claims to fame, it, it's easy for one to come up the middle like a, like a mediocre candidate at a, at a, at a, at a big uh, political convention. Uh, so the, the Luna pooping in front of your house somehow ousted uh, ordained minister, elected city councilor, friend of Pope. I actually think it speaks really highly uh, of your commitment to picking it up that I probably don't even know how often she poos in front of my house. <laughs> I, the I, sign of a really good neighbor. I, I still think one, one of the, the, the highest point of... COVID mania for me was, um, and I mean mania, not in the positive way of like Beatle mania, but yeah, COVID there's mania. no, there's no positive mania out of COVID. We can all- <laughs> no, the, but uh, where I just thought, uh, I just, she pooped right by your house. And I was like, well, um, the, the, their neighbor's garbage is easier to get to. Um, but I really should use my friend's garbage. That feels like less of a, uh, to, to put the poop bag in, um, uh, that somehow that felt like less of an imposition of my surface germs. Uh, and, and then, uh, what I didn't realize was that, uh, your husband, Seth and your son, Aaron, were having a, uh, a, a camping in the backyard experience. And this was, uh, I should say, uh, was a, the middle of the night and I woke them up, uh, trying to put poop into your, onto your property. Yeah, the real loss there is that that was the uh, only time that they camped in the backyard. And as uh, you might be able to relate to these days, um, none of us are ever rarely uh, alone. And so I had this night where the house was sort of to myself. They were tenting in the backyard and it has never happened again. So I blame (laughs) your dog for my lack of personal space this is this is the uh you've reminded me of a um something that became sort of a catchphrase for my uncle for his whole life um was uh that i my when i was about four my mom uh was trying to convince me to uh that i should be uh rather than relying on her or other grown-ups in my life to um wipe my bum after i had finished going to the bathroom that maybe i should would I like to try wiping my own bum as, as I was a big boy? Very advanced. And, yeah. And uh, um, so my Uncle Phil, uh, his son was my cousin Steve, uh, or Stevie at the time. And uh, my mom said, uh, Charlie, would you like to try wiping your bum? And I said, nah, you know what? Stevie tried it, got poop all over his hands. <laughs> and uh, that was my, that was my uh, rationale for like wiping my bum just wasn't going to be for me. Like as a lifelong, like I, a friend tried it, it didn't go well. So I'm going to stick with having other people wipe my bum. Being an adult. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, still, have you tried it? <laughs> no, Stevie tried it. Got poop all over his hands. Uh, but my uncle for the rest of his life, anytime anyone asked him uh, to do something, that's how he would uh, like it. So he worked at Canada Revenue for uh, decades, maybe more than 30 years. And anytime someone asked him to do anything, he'd go, nope, uh, Steve tried to got poo all over his hands. Um, and uh, so that was like, uh, it got carried forward for, 
uh, into into uh, immortality. We should we should probably introduce what's happening here. Uh, otherwise, it's people... a, it, it, it's not just a poo related podcast that you're doing. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's uh, what I signed up for. Yeah, it's 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 ext- it's bodily extrusions in general. Uh, no, it's uh, so what what uh, basically the the thinking here um, uh, was a was a and I, and I have to uh, thank my dear friend Paul Finch the uh, secretary treasurer of uh, the uh, BC, uh, it's still government employees union, right? But they say, they say BCGEU, they tried to change it to general employees union, I think was part of it, because it's not just government employees. Anyway, that's really inside baseball. Sorry, I got to put my broadcasting cap on here. Nobody gives a shit what the initials BCGEU stand for. He is the secretary treasurer of a great big union, um, and uh, he had the idea, he said, look, you're going to do this um, Substack thing, you're writing these blog posts, but why don't you also post podcasts? You've got uh, all these uh, phone numbers in your uh, cell phone from um, the world of comedy, from the world of po- uh, politics and political activism. And uh, uh, so I said, yeah. So Paul famously made the BCGU millions of dollars by suggesting they get all of their investments out of fossil fuels years ago. And uh, so I take all of his financial advice very seriously. So thank you to Paul. And thank you to Christine, uh, city councillor, uh, Vancouver city councillor, uh, for uh, and, and, and ordained minister of the United Church for agreeing to be my first uh, interviewee. Um, and the only, what, what I'm planning will be the only uh, free uh, episode. And so for, henceforth, uh, these uh, podcasts will be for subscribers um, to the uh, Substack. So I hope that you will subscribe. I hope that this uh, scintillating conversation about uh, poop and municipal matters uh, will uh, inspire you um, to to subscribe. So thank you very much for doing this, Christine. I really appreciate it. Happy to be here. And really, there's like no better sort of base metaphor for local government than the management of... uh, of waste in all its forms. So here we are really just like connecting all the dots right from the beginning. I was wondering what sort of genteel um, uh, euphemism it would be because you, you're not a vulgar person and I, I, uh, and I appreciate that about you and I like it about you and, and I, uh, and I like where you landed. I like that you landed in the waste. Um, oh yeah. Like, so I'm also um, as a, one of my appointments as a counselor in Vancouver is as a director at the Metro Vancouver board. Um, and one of the subcommittees is the liquid waste subcommittee. Oh. And it took me like longer than I feel like it should have to figure out uh, what, li- <laughs> what the liquid waste subcommittee dealt with. Um, and Just I extra juice boxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I'm not on that committee, um, but I have the maturity for it if uh, if I want it, I like to think. It's good to know that we're being looked after uh, by people who are willing to be on that committee. That, 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 that oh, yeah. committee um, meets yeah. um, in a hot tub, uh, oddly. Um, <laughs> I, uh, and I, I, I think we've also made clear in our, in our just over-familiarity um, here and uh, the fact that I know what your uh, husband's tenting schedule is, uh, that... You know, there, in terms of interviewing, uh, you know, if I were, if this were hardball uh, in any sort of way, 
the, the, I, you know, because I was going to list off the sort of conflicts of interest um, uh, that, it, that adhere to any kind of uh, interview between you and I, and there, there, there are too many to uh, name. I mean, you, one, you very generously um, subscribed to um, the Substack here, so it, just one of the many ways in which you are a, a model citizen, so thank you very much for that. But I, I just, people listening should expect about the level of sort of uh, critical, um, oppositional uh, sort of Frost versus Nixon style dialogue as, as like Dennis Rodman sitting down with Kim Jong-un to, you know, to pick their favorite uh, Korean Republic. Uh, that's a, the, the tier of, of oppositionality that, that I promise in, in this instance. Yeah. I'm really here for the low ball questions. Yeah. As I, I, I am, uh, just so your listeners know, simultaneously um, baking challah as we uh, talk. So really. Ooh, that's a, uh, and for those of you who don't know, challah is a um, traditional bread associated with uh, the United Church of Canada. Like the mixing of the pandemic and, uh, you know, our multi-faith household all here in a marzipan uh, sweet bread. I, um... Uh, I, I, what I love about challah is there's no, it, there's, uh, challah to me is, is uh, potato pancake-esque in a sort of, um, uh, uh, and a refusal to try and hide the carbohydrate situation. Like there's no attempt to say, no, but it's kind of healthy because you can eat it like this or you could just, it's just, this is a cakey bread. Oh yeah. And, um, uh, and potato pancakes are, are, are that way. And I feel like potato pancakes and egg noodles are the only two foods where anybody ever just said, let's just put two food words together and make an, a, a third delicious food. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, uh, many have, but somehow you can't. <laughs> this might go wrong. This is my first time. It's an internet <laughs> recipe, but anyway. Uh, yeah, so yeah, because I I don't is marzipan, marzipan is not a uh, traditional challah um, component, is it? No, it's just like the food that I'm craving all the time right now, almond everything. So I Ooh. thought I would just um, bake into bread and see what happens. Uh, please keep us updated. Well, I'll, I'll send out a, uh, a a post after this to let to let everybody know how how this ends up going. Uh, so you are. Uh, your household is um, a Christian Jewish household, and so you have uh, um, Hanukkah has wrapped. Um, uh, it's early this year. It was an early Hanukkah, right? Um, Hanukkah finished on Friday. Yes, I uh, I don't um, follow the days of the week anymore. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, I have uh, gotten out of that habit. Um, they're all just one uh, long day after the next, um, but. Yes, it ended uh, recently. And and your son Aaron, he uh, does he prefer a year where Hanukkah and Christmas are close together, or does uh, does he prefer um, a, a bit of a span between them and kind of stretch stretch the holiday season? I'm not sure. He's six, so he's like every year, you know the. You're not sure he's six? I can, I can tell you. He is six. I have photos of our children together. He yeah, is exactly. Six. They're the same, uh, roughly the same age. Um, 
I don't think that he has a preference. I prefer when they don't overlap. Um, and this is kind of a nice distance. We sort of do Hanukkah. Um, I mean, to be honest, we put up a Christmas tree in November, which is unheard of for us, but we were really desperate for... You were uh, not alone in that this year. Yeah. Um, but this is, a good, this is a good season. We did a good Hanukkah. It overlapped kind of with my city meetings and budget stuff a bit too much, but um, we did Hanukkah. And now we're in the middle zone and starting to turn on Christmas music. Hanukkah is a good holiday uh, to do a budget to because it, it feels like, can you just stretch it a little? Can you make it last? Because I know some people who good one. do. Um, uh, you have uh, mentioned to me before that it is very important to you uh, with a, a, a child who has both uh, Judaism and Christianity in the house uh, not to treat uh, Hanukkah as like uh, the advent calendar for Christmas, like that it's not an opening act holiday. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, um, we try to get the balance right. Our kids each get a little present over Hanukkah. Seth kind of admits that he feels he needs to try to make it compete a little bit with Christmas. Um, but we approach the holidays pretty differently. So for Seth, Hanukkah is a political holiday. Um, and sometime you may be treated to his sort of like 40 minute to an hour long version of the Hanukkah story, which is heavy on uh, battles um, and people kind of defending their religion and their culture against uh, uh, cultural imperialism. Um, and the miracle of the oil is sort of the little cherry at the end, but the, the bigger picture for him is really a um, uh, uh, political fight against imperialism. Um, so he draws on the, the politics of the holiday and then we get to Christmas and I sort of constantly want to shed the dominant culture of Christmas, which is, is really so much wrapped up in capitalism and consumerism. And I want to get into the sort of spiritual and religious roots of Christmas, um, which is this story of the, the birth of a baby um, in very unideal circumstances and the, the kind of hope that that brought and the transformational change that resulted. Uh, so di very different holidays, very different approaches, um, you know, still unwrapping of Lego at each of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, then there's kind of this kind of a building block, uh, nice and interlocking. Well, I, I anyway, I, I respect... Uh, what you're doing, because I think uh, there are um, uh, there are whole uh, Christian traditions built on uh, treating um, uh, the entire Hebrew scriptures as uh, the Advent calendar, essentially uh, the, uh, for <laughs> just getting ready for Christmas. Yeah, uh, yeah. the the entire uh, law and prophets. Uh, that's what Ezekiel was doing, getting ready for Christmas. Um, uh, but I, I, it, it's a nice, it's a nice transition into what I wanted to, um, talk to you about because, uh, I, I was listening actually to an interview, uh, last night as it happens. Um, uh, not, uh, I was not listening to as it happens, but I was listening to an interview with, uh, an academic, uh, from the, uh, United States who, uh, uh studies 
the religious left and uh, one of the points that this person was making was that the religious left as opposed to the religious right um, has, has tended to focus more on cultural power than, uh, than on the levers of actual um, uh, electoral success and, and decision making. And, and I think, you know, one of the ways in which that sort of uh, difference was, was uh, shown was in all the kind of mystification that, that people showed about how could um, the, the uh, right-wing evangelicals and, and right-wing Catholics in, in the United States have supported Trump, uh, you know, he, he, for all the stuff that he stands for, his, his sexual politics, uh, et cetera. Uh, when, it, you know, it was very clear that he gave them two Supreme Court justices. He, he, you know, they, they, it was about what legislatively they saw they could get out of this guy. Um, and then I think of uh, you and your work on, on Vancouver City Council. And I think of a, a, a Twitter thread that you recently uh, posted that, that culminated with, uh, I think, just such an important... Um, piece of 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 insight um, into um, how the the religious left uh, in in specific, but also how the left in general can can start approaching some of these questions again. Which is the you said that budgets in this case you were talking about the the city budget for two thousand twenty one budgets are where we show who we are. Uh, I think for some people that would seem like a like a dramatic statement about a very boring topic. Why why would they be wrong? Uh, you know, it, it's it's true. I stand by it. Dramatic statement on a boring subject is uh, maybe a description of my Twitter feed overall. Um, <laughs> uh, for a local government, and I, I think this is true everywhere. We can pass lots of motions, um, we can uh, theoretically support the creation of lots of different types of policies. Um, we have really kind of a regulatory tools, advocacy tools, and, and investment tools. Um, and it matters uh, what we, so it matters what we actually fund. You know, through the year, we can say nice things about our commitment to anti-racism, about our commitment to climate change, about our commitments uh, on housing or, you know, public washrooms or supporting the needs of those most vulnerable. Um, uh, and then we get to our budget at the end of the year and it matters whether or not we actually invest in those things. And if we don't, uh, then I maintain that those were kind of empty statements. I, I mean, you may feel that you mean it, but if you're not willing to uh, fund it, it doesn't make a tangible difference for anyone. Um, and, uh, and that matters. So absolutely, I think budgets are, uh, are one of the most important decisions that we make as a local government. And it's been where I have focused a lot of my time and energy largely behind the scenes, but trying uh, as well to do as much kind of public uh, education and breaking down of how it works for folks so that more people understand why they matter uh, and, and how they happen and how more people can have a say in them. I mean, you know, funding public washrooms is, is a boring budget line item until you have to shit in a bush and then it is a question of human dignity then it's an actual 
you know, and especially in a city with a housing emergency because of what has been allowed to happen both by the sort of lawful mechanics of capitalism and also as we're increasingly finding out, uh, criminal activity at the very top of society uh, and government, um, uh, you know, we, we're, uh, pe people are, are, are forced into these uh, situations that, that are absolutely um, compromising of, of that human dignity. And, and uh, so, so those numbers, um, they don't just represent numbers. They don't, they don't just represent um, uh, ab abstract uh, votes. Um, beyond that, you, you do two other things in, in, in your framing. One, one that I really appreciated was that uh, you, you framed it in terms of that a lot of people don't have the time to dig into what a city budget looks like or how it works, which uh, the time or the energy, which I think is so much better than the, the, the sort of old way of framing things, which was always that people were too complacent or distracted or, or whatever. Um, but the other thing that you do, the other common sense that you take on in this in this thread um, is the idea that in times like this, where we're being very hard hit and city finances have taken a huge hit uh, because of COVID, um, the common sense idea is that this is the time now to scrimp and save and uh, pass austerity budgets, to spend less. Uh, what's wrong with that idea? I mean, it hurts people uh, in numerous ways. So, you know, most economists, not even just the lefty economists, um, but but uh, across the board would say that austerity in a crisis makes things worse. Um, and in order to even just from an economic sense, keep the economy going, people need uh, people need money in their pockets to be able to spend um, and and people need jobs. And so at the local level, you know, we have very few fiscal tools. Um, and until this, Vancouver starts printing its own currency, which I have long supported. And I feel yeah. like we can float on the back of marijuana. You can you can start that campaign and I'll uh, um, I'll follow it closely but until then. <laughs> well, that was so political because I could hear you about to support and then realized you couldn't publicly commit to it. I, I respect that kind of. Let uh, me learn more before you're so cagey. I take yeah. a position. Look, I'm only two years in and I've really grown into <laughs> Definitely. this role. Um, we have very few fiscal tools. Uh, a lot of our spending is uh, is on people on staff and so austerity at the local level uh, looks like um, layoffs. Uh, it would look like um, reducing upkeep of important infrastructure which just costs us more down the road. Um, it would look like cutting back on services that people uh, rely on like libraries, um, like frontline services uh, in the downtown east side and elsewhere, and it would certainly mean not investing in the things we know we need more of, like public toilets. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I very strongly believe that uh, this crisis is not a time to respond with austerity, and a lot of my work on the budget this year was figuring out how, in a time of a very real financial uh, hit to the city, when our budget for next year will be lower than our budget from last year. How do we make sure that even within that, um, we're not cutting back where it would 
hurt people most. And that, and I think we landed there in this budget, um, but it didn't happen easily. Uh, and so that's why, um, in part, I, I tried to make sure I was talking through it publicly and helping people understand because um, it's a critically important decision. And uh, it's and it's hard for people to know and follow um, in all of the details of it. And I think you know, our movements are stronger and our city is stronger when people better understand how these things happen. And, uh, you know, the processes aren't set up to be um, elusive for no reason. I mean, certain populations know how to engage and a lot of people get left out. And so part of my effort always on any issue is uh, trying to pull back the curtain a bit and help more people, particularly who experience barriers to participation for a myriad of reasons better uh, engage on these issues that really affect them and, and their communities. You mentioned the desire to take uh, sentiments or feelings that are, that are being articulated through the year and then in the budget make those uh, material or make those concrete in a, in, in a, in a specific way. And uh, obviously this has been a, a year in which uh, a, a, a an enormous amount has been articulated and uh, sort of analyzed and thought through and uh, contested uh, around the idea of policing and particularly policing in, in, uh, through the lens of uh, racial justice and, and uh, colonialism. And um, an amendment that you uh, successfully put forward to the budget was uh, to hold uh, police funding at 2020 levels. And to put this in perspective, the uh, Vancouver Police Department was looking for an, an increase to their funding of, I, I think, six, six and a half million dollars. The city staff uh, re were recommending uh, an increase of three million. And, and uh, your amendment, uh, which was successful, uh, held the line at, at, at the current um, funding. Can you explain that process and, and, and why that was important? And where that uh, $6 million or $3 million uh, ended up instead. Yeah, absolutely. So um, as I said, our overall budget for next year is lower than last year. So uh, across nearly every city department, um, staff were finding savings. They were holding vacancies, meaning they weren't immediately rehiring to fill positions that were empty. Um, so there, there were ways in which each department was finding a way to um, to cut back a little during this fiscal crisis and the police instead decided they would ask for a pretty significant increase in the scope of the whole budget. Um, and I, I would say the, the larger context that I also think is important um, is is how much so many social and public services have been underfunded uh, or, or, you know, quote unquote defunded over decades. And the result often has been an increase in police budgets to deal with the downstream impacts. Uh, so it's one form of cost downloading onto local governments because uh, mental health and education and housing all aren't traditionally municipal jurisdiction, um, but they have been underfunded for decades by uh, provincial and federal governments. Um, and then we end up 
paying for the cost of an increased police response to the underfunding of all of those types of services. Um, and not only is it a very uh, fiscally ineffective approach, it, it uh, obviously doesn't work for people. Um, you know, the response to homelessness shouldn't be increased policing. The response to racism shouldn't be increased policing. Um, it, it, it doesn't make sense, but it's the system that has evolved because, as I say, these critical services have been underfunded for decades. Um, so I think that's the ship we're trying to uh, begin to turn around in this budget. And of course, we're not doing it all on our own in one budget cycle. But for this year, we, in light of that conversation, in light of the fiscal pressures on the city, we held the police budget at a 0% increase. And we, uh, and we invested specifically in some work that council had directed through a motion earlier in the year to look at community-led alternatives to policing um, and uh, approaches to decriminalizing poverty. So hopefully the work that happens out of that comes back to council in time for the next budget and can inform the, the next steps in this shift so, the, so that we're better meeting the needs of people um, and not just expecting a police force to kind of deal with the deal with the uh, end result we're actually investing in um, upstream systemic solutions locally and at every level I hope. Thank you and I, I, I hope that um, the scoring of that wonderful answer with uh, my daughter playing downstairs, being picked up on the mic, uh, whose gain is up too high. Uh, this is somehow, I don't know, is that, uh, will that juxtapose in a, in a useful way? Will that juxtapose in a destructive way? Let me know in the comments. Again, you'll only be able to comment if you are a paid subscriber to the uh, Substack uh, account. And uh, this will be uh, what I'm hoping the only uh, free episode of, of the podcast but uh, Christine was generous enough with her time to uh, uh, appear as a guest here on, on the very first episode, the very first installment of the podcast. Please do subscribe uh, for other guests. None of them will be as scintillating as Vancouver City Councilor uh, Christine Boyle, but um, they will be great nonetheless. And uh, I will be uh, trying to do those um, at least weekly and uh, sending them out uh, uh, on the service. Uh, Chris, Chris, I love... I love speaking to you, um, particularly around Christmas. I realized that uh, uh, the last time I did a podcast with you was also right around Christmas. And, and um, one, one of the things that is so um, stark this year is the, the sort of uh, dialectic in, uh, built into the Christian calendar uh, uh, of Advent, um, of the, the, the tension between uh, darkness and hope. That is that is sort of rolled into Advent. Um, we're uh, recording this sort of just in time for the the winter solstice. Uh, it'll be sort of trickling out to people um, uh, as, as we head you know right into uh, Christmas proper. Um, as we're going into the uh, the year ahead, uh, I know that you're not one for uh, cheap uh, optimism, but you're also not one for for cheap pessimism. And I was wondering if you could 
share with uh, me and with my listeners a little bit about what it is that, that keeps you um, coming back morning after morning um, from some of those uh, very dark nights, uh, especially, especially this past year? Yeah, absolutely. Look, I, um, I wrestle with anxiety and despair a lot, probably uh, more than I kind of publicly speak about. Um, I think there are a few, there are a few things that have given me hope in this past year. Um, and one is a kind of pulling away of the veil. Is that the right expression? I'm not sure. Um, in, in, a better understanding for all of us of how interdependent we are, how much my own health and safety and well-being is uh, is dependent on the health and well-being of uh, my neighbor across the street or across the city. Um, you know, the pandemic has made that clear because uh, we needed, as a city, as a region, to um, to work together and particularly to support uh, those who have been made most vulnerable by policy failures over decades um, in order to prevent all of us from getting more sick in order to prevent a massive outbreak. And so I think that made very clear our interdependence. Um, uh, and I also saw this year a lot of people uh, kind of better understanding uh, the systemic impacts of racism and starting to do the work that, you know, maybe it shouldn't have come as a surprise, that work should have been done decades ago, um, but here we are, and in this year, a lot of people uh, started to do that learning and work in a, in a deeper and broader sense, um, and so there have been a kind of uh, we have learned and better understood on a number of fronts. I hope that continues into the following years and informs our work. Um, and always, I say to people, because it's my own experience, the greatest uh, antidote to despair that I've ever known is, uh, is activism, is working with other people on issues that matter uh, and, and creating change for all of us together. So that's my recommendation as someone who uh, who also wrestles with anxiety and despair. Um, the the thing that brings me out of it is getting to do the work uh, and not doing it alone as some kind of hero um, and not needing to solve every problem on my own, but working alongside good people who I learn from and who pull me along when I uh, when I struggle as well um, in doing the big work of making a better world for all of us. Chris, thanks so much for this. Thanks so much for that. Uh, I wish you the uh, closing out of a very happy Hanukkah and uh, the opening strings of a very Merry Christmas and hope that we will get to spend a lot of actual in-person time uh, around each other in 2021. Me too. I can't wait. Say hello to your family for me and uh, we'll look forward to seeing your face uh, in person or as you uh, walk by and try to hide the fact that your dog is pooing on my lawn. Yeah. Oh, and incidentally, just, just uh, 
hide a hunk of the marzipan challah, you know, under under uh, uh, one of the more obvious rocks. Yeah, yeah. I'll uh, I'll I'll let you know where I'm tucking it away. Beautiful. Yeah. Thank Bye, you. Bye, Chris. Happy holidays.